They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they are spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land was explored devours those living in, in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the next reading is from Hebrews chapter 3, and it starts at verse 7 on page 1863 of the Red Book and goes through to uh, chapter 4, verse 11. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, 
if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them, did not go in because of their disobedience. God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For as Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God rests also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Hear the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. Thanks for reading, Karen. We're going to be um, looking at that story from Numbers 13 and 14. And uh, we had that reading from Hebrews because the writer of the Hebrews really um, kind of takes that story and uh, applies it to his hearers and to us. Uh, let me start with uh, a fairly serious question for you. Uh, what's been your greatest experience, experience of loss? in your life thus far? What's been your greatest experience of loss? I, I realize that may uh, bring some pretty raw, painful memories for some of us. Uh, there's been grief at the death of someone we've loved, a, a parent, uh, a sibling, a child, a friend. Or, or maybe there's been the loss that's come through relationship breakdown, separation, divorce. Maybe you've experienced loss through ill health or injury. Maybe you've lost your home. Maybe you've lost your wealth and the security that it provides. Maybe you've lost your job and the sense of worth that often goes with it. Uh, we've all experienced loss of different kinds and different degrees through our lives. What I want to suggest as we start this morning is that as bad and painful as all, all those experiences of loss are, there's no loss as great as the gut-wrenching 
loss of heaven. There's nothing worse than missing out on heaven. That reading from Hebrews tells us, I think, the big lesson we need to take away from this story in Numbers. In verse 1, the writer says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful, literally, let us fear that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Rather, as he says in verse 11, let's therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So there are a few, few things more serious that we could be thinking about this morning. Uh, Henry's already prayed. Let me pray again uh, for God's help as we come to his word. Father, we do believe that these things happen to them as examples and were written down as, as warnings for us. And so we pray this morning that you'd help us as we hear your voice to heed this warning to be careful that we don't follow their example of disobedience and unbelief, but rather that we make every effort to persevere in faith, trusting in your promise of rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're week four in our Numbers series, and what have we seen so far? The first ten chapters were about travel preparations as the people got ready for their journey from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. And it all seemed to start well. The people were ordered and obedient. They were told again and again they did everything that the Lord commanded. It all seemed set for a triumphal entry to the Promised Land. We saw last week as we got into chapter 11 at Things weren't quite so ordered and obedient. The people complained about their hardships. We're sick of this manna, nothing but manna day after day. And then we saw Moses complain about their complaining. I can't deal with these people, Lord, kill me now. We saw how God responded with both grace and justice, providing help for Moses and meat for the people, but bringing death to the instigators, the ringleaders of the complaints. Now in chapter 13, it's just a few months later, and they've reached the edge of the land. You see, we know, if we know the story of the Old Testament at all, that the people were walking in the wilderness for 40 years, but that's not because it was a long journey. The beginning of Deuteronomy tells us it was actually from Mount Sinai to the edge of Canaan. It's an 11-day journey, that's all. It took them a bit longer because there were some delays along the way, but it wasn't far. And the Lord has blessed them and he's kept them. He's made his face shine on them and been gracious to them, forgiving their sin of grumbling. And he's about to give them peace and rest in the land flowing with milk and honey. These chapters should be an account of their triumphal entry into the land. Numbers could have been a much shorter book. But in this episode, they completely blow it. They snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Fear gives way to panic and outright rebellion with devastating consequences. And we need to realize this is more than just another instance of doubt and grumbling. This episode is a a watershed moment in the history of Israel as they're consigned to 40 years wandering in the wilderness until that whole generation dies out and a new generation are brought into the land of promise. This story stands as a warning to all subsequent generations not to harden our hearts to the voice of the Lord, 
but to make every effort to persevere in trusting God's promise. So four points to guide us through this morning. The spies report, the people's rebellion, the Lord's response, and the promise of rest. Firstly, the spies report. In the first half of chapter 13, uh, we're told about how Moses sent spies into the land. Now, these are not spies in the kind of espionage sense. These are spies doing reconnaissance. Over a period of 40 days, they explore the land. They map out its territory. They cut down a cluster of grapes. It's so big, it takes two of them to carry it on a pole. And they bring some pomegranates and figs back as well, proof of the land's fruitfulness. They bring it all back to Moses. It's interesting if you look, I can't remember the verse, uh, Hebron gets particular mention as one of the places that they visit in their exploration. And if you know your Bible, you'll know that Hebron, it was near Hebron that God first made the promise to Abraham that he would inherit the land. And it's at Hebron that Abraham acquired his only piece of real estate in the land, uh, a field to bury his wife Sarah in, where also he and the other patriarchs were buried. Anyway, the spies return to Moses and the people, and they deliver their report. There's a hint that something might be off when they start by saying, verse 27, we went into the land to which you sent us. Now, how is the land usually described? It's the land that the Lord promised to give us. Now, it might just be a slip of the tongue. Probably not, from what they go on to say. The report starts with a brief description of the fruitfulness of the land. It does flow with milk and honey, they say. You were right. Here's, here's some of its fruits. But the spies then start talking about the people of the land and the cities. And, and this is really the focus of what they say. The people are strong and the cities are large and fortified. Now, up to this point, the 12 spies are in agreement. But when it comes to their recommendations for action, disagreement appears. There's a division in the team of spies. Ten on one side, two on the other. First, we hear the minority report from Caleb, verse 30. Basically, he says, let's, let's go. Let's take possession of the land. We're well able to overcome these people. He's confident, isn't he? Even though there are strong people and fortified cities, they're no match for gods. But then, verse 31, the other spies deliver the majority reports. We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. See, all the spies agree on the challenge that they face. But to the question, can we do it? Joshua and Caleb say, yes, we can. And the others say, no, we can't. Verse 32 says they spread a bad report among the Israelites. The word here means not just a negative report, but a false one. They're spinning the truth, aren't they? They're spreading fake news. They're saying it's not a good land. God was lying. This land is so harsh in its environment. It devours its inhabitants. And the people, they're not just big and strong. We saw the Nephilim there. Now that's a reference back to people described in Genesis chapter 6. Demigods who lived on the earth before the floods. We're like grasshoppers in comparison. We haven't got a chance. 
Well, what are the people going to do? Who will they listen to? Sadly, point two tells us about the people's rebellion. The first thing they do is panic. They start weeping again, grumbling and complaining. All they can see is the challenge before them. There's no possibility in their minds that God might actually do what he said he would do. They seem to have completely forgotten God's great act of power, how he's already brought them up out of Egypt, how he's brought the world's greatest superpower to its knees, how he's brought them through the Red Sea, how he's revealed himself in glory at Mount Sinai and provided for them every day of their journey. They've forgotten all that. All they can see is the challenge before them. The people of the land are big, and we're so small. And God, well, God can't be trusted. They start thinking that anything they've experienced up to now will be better than Canaan. If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, that would have been better. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land, verse 3, only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now in chapter 11, we saw they were looking back to Egypt with rose-tinted glasses, remembering the, the meats and the, the, pom, the, the melons and the cucumbers and all the tasty food that they got to eat and completely forgetting all the hardships of slavery. But now they're actually proposing that they return to Egypt. Let's get rid of Moses. Let's choose another leader who will take us back. I'm sure we can work out better working conditions. Pharaoh would welcome us back gladly. Now, can you see how serious this is? The whole point of the journey was getting into the land. God's promise right from the beginning of Exodus was to bring them out of Egypt and into Canaan. Right back at the beginning of Genesis, God had promised to Abraham to give him and his descendants the promised land. They're on the edge of the land. They're within sight of their goal. They've seen some of its fruit. The next act in the story of Israel is fulfillment. It should be receiving their promised inheritance. But instead, they're suggesting giving it all up. Completely rejecting the whole plan of salvation. And rather than trusting God, they accuse him of evil. No wonder Moses and Aaron fall on their faces and Joshua and Caleb tear their clothes in distress. What the people are saying is blasphemous. They're inviting God's judgments. But they're given one last chance to repent. 14 verse 7, Joshua and Caleb try to reason with the people. They say, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Now, they don't get into an argument about the actual size of the Canaanites, but they insist they're not to be feared. Verse 9, do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. It's a little gospel sermon, isn't it? They preach the good news of God's promise. 
He's giving us an exceedingly good land. Trust him. Don't be afraid. Nothing's impossible for God. But the people refuse to believe God's promise. They reject Caleb and Joshua's message. See what they do, verse 10? They decide they're going to stone them. Well, what does God think of this rebellion and refusal to believe? Point three, the Lord's response. Verse 10, but the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. God threatens to disinherit the people, kill them off and start again with Moses. It's reminiscent of the incident of the golden calf back in Exodus 32, where God made a similar threat. In that incident, Moses interceded on behalf of the people, and so he does the same here. Verses 13 to 19, Moses appeals to God. And notice he doesn't just say, Lord, please let them off. Give them a second chance. No, he appeals on the basis of God's glory and God's character. God's glory. Verse 15, Moses says, If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who've heard this report about you will say, The Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. You see how Moses is praying, the basis of his prayer. He doesn't want God to wipe them out for the sake of God's own reputation and glory. And he appeals on the basis of God's character. The logic here is if God forgives his people, he will show himself to be even greater and more powerful. Moses appeals to what God's revealed about himself in Exodus 34. In verse 18, Moses prays that the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Moses is saying, it would be understandable for you to wipe these people out here and now, if you acted with justice. That would be understandable. But Lord, do the harder thing. Be merciful. Forgive, even though they don't deserve it. Then everyone will see how amazing you truly are. And that's what God does. He finds a way to forgive and to judge. He judges the guilty and keeps his promise to Israel. So verse 20, he says, he has pardoned Israel. He, he's not going to annihilate them. The promise to Israel still stands. God will bring them into the land. But, verse 21, none of the people who've rebelled these ten, ten times will see it. It's striking that the rebels receive exactly what they asked for. In chapter 14, verse 2, they said, if only we died in Egypt or, or in this wilderness... And so if you look on to verse 28, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. 
every one of you, 20 years old or more, who has counted in the census and who's grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. And so that census that we read back in chapter 1, each tribe and the the number of men 20 years old uh, or more, it was a, a, a counting of the people. Now it's a death toll. There were 46,500 from the tribe of Reuben. Well, 46,500 from the tribe of Reuben will die in the wilderness. And the death of that generation starts immediately in verses 36 to 37, when the 10 spies who brought the bad report die right there and then. It is a very sad, tragic day in the life of the nation of Israel. But what does this all mean for us? We are not Israelites stuck in a desert looking forward to big clusters of grapes in the land of Canaan. But we are looking forward to our promised rest in the new creation. So fourthly, finally, the promise of rest. Let me read to you again from Hebrews 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. The writer says we're in the same position. We've had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. And we need to be really careful about how we respond. Because the warning of the numbers generation is that responding with unbelief, hardening our hearts, will mean that we miss out on the promise. So let me make a few points of application as we finish. Firstly, 
the promise of rest still stands. In verse 9, the writer says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Friends, there is a rest open to us today. The promise of heaven is still available. Perfect peace, rest, fullness of life, freedom from sickness and suffering and sin, a new body to live in a new creation, enjoying the goodness of God forever. The door is not shut. The time has not passed. You've not missed your opportunity. Jesus has lived the life you should have lived, obeying at every opportunity, unlike the Israelites, always obeyed, always trusted. And Jesus died the death you and I deserve to die, taking our place on the cross. And Jesus rose again to glory, securing a place for us in the new creation. The promise of rest still stands today. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe the good news. Say yes to God's promise and enter that rest. Secondly, we need to persevere in faith. The writer here doesn't encourage a passive response. He doesn't say, once saved, always saved, so don't worry about it. No, he says, see to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart. Encourage one another daily. Let us fear lest any of you be found to have fallen short. Make every effort to enter. What does that mean? Does it mean we need to live in constant anxiety and fear that we're going to fall away? Well, no, but we do need to be aware of the danger of unbelief. John Piper says helpfully, the normal Christian life is aware of the fearful danger of unbelief, but does not live paralyzed or terrorized by it. It lives in faith. Fear only rises where faith starts to weaken, and it only rises long enough to get us back into the peaceful fearlessness of faith. True Christian faith is persevering faith. The Christian life is a life of day by day, hour by hour, trusting in Jesus and the promises of God, fixing and refixing again and again our eyes on him. Thirdly, we need to think and talk about heaven. Because if we forget where we're heading, if we lose sight of our hope, then we'll lose heart and we'll grumble about our hardships and we'll give in to temptation. I try to remind myself every day that I'm one day closer to the day when Jesus returns and hope is fulfilled and faith gives way to sights. Heaven is a wonderful place full of glory and grace I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. And all the hardships of this life are not worth comparing with the glory of heaven. So let's encourage one another 
remind each other of God's precious promises and make every effort to enter that rest. Let's pray. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter that rest. Father, we thank you for the, the warning of this story from Numbers. We thank you that your promise of rest still stands. We pray that you would help us to respond in faith and obedience taking hold of your promise, encouraging one another, reminding each other of your precious promise of heaven and making every effort to persevere in faith that we might come at last to share in that glorious inheritance that you've secured for us in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.